So Lord, we thank you this morning that you are here, that you love us with an everlasting love, and that you care so deeply for each of us. And so I pray today that we would sense your amazing presence right now in our midst, that our hearts would be open to hearing your voice. And Lord, you're going to speak to us, and even though I share words, you have something special for each individual. You want to say something unique and special. You're going to speak right into situations today where there's perplexity and despair and doubt and frustration and anxiety. I pray that your joy and peace and love and grace would flood our hearts. I ask, Lord, that hope would well up within us, that you would reveal your presence to us in such an amazing way that we would run to you, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you be seated. And uh, we'll just turn here to Mark chapter 5. You know, in 1902, a little boy was born to James and Mary Little. They were Scottish missionaries in China, and they named him Eric. And when Eric was four, his dad began to share with him, because he was reading the newspaper, how a Scotsman had won second place in the 400 meters in the Olympics. And that was the first Scot to ever win an Olympic medal in track. And so, obviously, you know, I don't think this is wrong. I think that God loves us all. We all have unique cultures and distinctions. And it's okay to be proud of our countries of origin and our adopted country. Amen? I think that's great. It's wonderful. This is a healthy kind of expression. But, you know, Eric was kind of a precocious child. And, and he said to his dad, when, when his dad was trying to explain this to both he and his older brother, he said, well, dad, does that mean that no Scotsman has ever won first? And his dad said, no, no one ever has. Well, eventually, you know, as it was at that time, many missionaries would take their children and put them in boarding school. And so this family decided to bring them back to England, and they were put in a boarding school. And both Eric and his brother began to excel in certain sports. And, uh, and eventually, Eric set a school record in the 100-meter sprint and eventually attended the university. University of Edinburgh where he continued to excel and eventually emerged, emerged as the fastest sprinter in the 100 meters in his entire country and became a national hero. As a matter of fact, he became the champion for the whole British Isles. Now his, his older brother who was very, very active in other, in, in, uh, with other Christian college students in holding evangelistic meetings throughout Scotland so they invited Eric to come and speak at one of their gatherings. And so he went, and the very next day, uh, the paper in Scotland announced that Eric Little had preached an evangelistic service. And that experience really did something inside of his soul. It kind of stirred him, and he thought, you know, I really like doing this. And so over the next two years, he began to speak to thousands throughout the British Isles. Meanwhile, how many know that when you become a public figure, the public begins to notice things? And so the newspaper were kind of following his life and began to criticize or really began to question his commitment to running since he was spending so much time preaching. In 1924, a year later, the Olympics were held in Paris. And all of the hopes of the entire British Isles were now pinned on this young Scot as the nation's champion sprinter. He was, his best event was the 100 meters, though he also ran in the 200 and in the 400 meters. And everything was fine until the Olympic schedule came out and the opening heats, or the first heats, you know how they have these heats of elimination, 
were scheduled on a Sunday. Now, Eric had a great conviction that he did not believe he should participate in anything but worship and rest on a Sabbath, or what the Christian Sabbath, which is a Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. Notice I didn't say the Jewish Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the day of rest. And so he, just, he declined from participating in the 100 meters. Now, this really upset his coaches and his own Olympic committee, so they went to the, you know, the World Olympic Committee and begged that they would move those first heats to another day so that their champion could actually run in the races. But guess what happened? They refused to move the heat, and so Eric refused to run. And this created a whole you know, tension in the entire you know, British Isles because now the paper are running articles in the, in the, you know, the press is attacking him. One wrote, a traitor to Scottish sporting, and I mean, all kinds of things. So he's under, you know, he's, he's, he's in his early 20s. He's got all this pressure on him to conform to what everybody wants him to do, and yet he feels in his heart, I cannot do this. Well, he withdrew from the 100 meters. He eventually ran and won a silver medal. Came in second in the 200 meter race, the final. So he actually won a medal in that race and he was actually the first Scot to ever win a medal in that event. That was on a Wednesday. On a Thursday he ran the first heat for the 400 meters which if you get a little sense, he was probably the fastest at 100 meters, so as you get further up in the lengths, you know, now he's, that's not his strength. And so this was probably his weakest event, the 400 meters. So he ran it on a Thursday, he qualified for the 400 meters, but he was far from the favorite. He probably didn't even win the heat. And so the finals were held on Friday. And as he was preparing to go to the stadium, the team, you know, they had a masseur, masseuse, and he handled a small folded piece of paper which had these words written on it. He that honors me, I will honor. It's actually a quote from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. Eric ran that day and shattered the, and set a new world record of 47.6 and was the first Scot to ever win a gold medal in track. That was 1924. 1925, having felt the call of God in his heart, he went back to China. Now remember, he's the son of a missionary to become a missionary. Where he served in China, and in the 1930s, if you know anything about history, Japan invaded China. They incarcerated all the missionaries because they declared war on Britain. He was a British citizen. He went to a POW camp. And unfortunately, Eric Little died there. It's kind of sad, isn't it? You know, a movie was depicted about Eric Little. Some of you probably have seen it. It's called Chariots of Fire. It actually won the, the, the best picture, the Oscar for the best picture in 1981. Now, let me just point out something. The way I've described it to you is not the way the movie quite depicts it. But how many know Hollywood does take license with stories? Usually they say something like, this is taken from a true story, but then they add a little Hollywood flair to it. So they changed it a little bit. The way I'm depicting it to you is the way it actually happened. Very powerful story. So it seemed to Eric, when the Olympic schedule came up, his dream for a gold medal had come to an end. It really did. And can you imagine the great pressure on him 
when all of your country, all of this patriotism, all of this sense of duty is flooding at you and you feel in your heart, I cannot do this, to stand against that kind of pressure. How many think that would take an amazing amount of moral courage to be able to make a decision in the face of your entire country? How many think that might might take a little bit of, you know, something inside of your soul to be able to do that? I think that's a powerful story. You know, Eric's conviction to honor God brought about God in turn honoring him. God had a different plan. You know, sometimes we have an agenda in our life. Sometimes we have a hope in our life. Sometimes we have dreams in our lives and they don't become the reality that we thought they would be because God sometimes has a different plan or purpose in mind. But what seemed like an impossibility to Eric became a reality. So God's ways and God's timing are often different than our ways and our timing. You know how often it seems in our lives that God is late? Anybody relate to this? You know, I've entitled this sermon when it seems too late. How many of you ever had an experience when you thought, God, you know what, you're overdue. You're into overtime. You're not showing up on my timetable. You know, you didn't hit the schedule that, you know, I needed to have met. Anybody have that kind of experience? When it seems too late. I'm sure it seemed too late for Eric. You know, but there's one thing we need to remember. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. And we need to know that. This was certainly true in the case of another story found in the New Testament. It's the story where a friend of Jesus named Lazarus was deeply sick. He was living in Judea close by Jerusalem. Jesus is up in Galilee, which is, you know, a distance away, at least a few days walk. And news reaches Jesus through two other friends, Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, that their brother's extremely ill. Please, Jesus, could you come and do something. Could you come and pray for our brother? Could you come and minister healing into his life? You know? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't go. And if you know the story in John chapter 11, this is what Jesus says to his disciples while he's just sleeping. And the disciples say, well, that's good. He's getting better then. Jesus goes, no, dummies, he's dead. Whoa, that's kind of shocking. And he says, I'm glad that I didn't go down there because what is about to happen is going to bring great glory to God. And so Jesus goes down there and of course one of the disciples says, you know, this is kind of a risky thing for Jesus to do because they were literally trying to entrap Jesus and kill him in Judea. And so they said, let's go down and die with him. So I'm giving you a little sense of the tension that Jesus was faced when he went down there to his friend Lazarus. Now, I'm going to show you And they get there that both Mary and Martha were actually a little disappointed with Jesus. Look at what it says here in John chapter 11, verse 21. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I I get two things from this text. Number one, I get a tremendous expression of faith. She believed that if Jesus had been there, he would have lived. How many see that? She believed that Jesus was able to heal her brother. That's an expression of faith. But how many also hear in this comment also a little rebuke to Jesus? If you had been here, he would not have died. In other words, where were you? Where were you in this situation? And to give you a sense that that's not just her attitude, a little later on when her 
sister Mary meets Jesus, it's in a few verses later, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, talk about using the same language. She says exactly the same thing because she too had faith that Jesus could heal her brother, but she too was a little annoyed with the fact that Jesus did not show up on time. You know what, in their minds, it was too late. How many see that? When it seems too late, but what does Jesus do? He says, probably one of the classic scripture verses, I know you have it all memorized. He gets up to the tomb, he says, roll away the stone, and Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. You got that one memorized? What was she saying? Hey, it's been four days, he's decomposing. There's probably an odor that's not pleasant coming from him. In other words, we know he's dead. And what does Jesus say to Lazarus? He says, Lazarus, come forth, and this man who had been dead for four days comes bounding out of this side of the mountain, this little sepulcher in the cave. He just kind of bounces out of there. How many know that probably created a little stir? As a matter of fact, we know it did because some people started running off to the chief priests to say, listen, Jesus just raised someone from the dead and the priest said, now we're in trouble. All the world is gonna follow after him and then they sought even the more further to make sure they could have him executed. It actually cost Jesus his life. But why did Jesus delay? That's the question we ask ourselves when we're in crisis. Why doesn't Jesus, first of all, why does he allow it to happen, number one? Number two, if it's happening, why does it take so long for him to do anything about my current situation? And that's another question we ask. And a lot of times we fill in the blanks with, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen. If God really cared, he'd get on it and he wouldn't be fooling around like this. But what I'm going to point out to you today is there's reasons for why God allows certain things to happen in our lives. And so we're going to now look at this beautiful text of Scripture here found in Mark's Gospel. Two miracles are interwoven into this story to reveal to us not only does Jesus have authority over disease, but he also has authority over death itself. And I love these stories. Now, you might have been here the last few weeks, and I started telling, you know, how Jesus had gone into the boat, and he, after teaching, you know, the parables, and he got on the water, and there was a huge storm. It was so bad that fishermen who had been there all their lives were fearing for their lives. Water was coming in the boat. I showed you in that message a few weeks ago the humanity of Jesus. He was weary. He was tired. He was sleeping on a pillow. The disciples came to him. They woke him up. They said, don't you care? We're going to drown. And Jesus stood up and he spoke to the weather. He said, the wind and waves. He said, be still. And immediately there was a calm. And I talked how it was at twilight. And the disciples, you know, because he had been teaching all day, it was later on, and so these guys now were terrified. Who is this? I mean, even the winds and the waves obey him. And then he gets to the other side, and, you know, there's this demonic activity going on. And many scholars believe that the storm was demonic in nature. And then he gets to the eastern side of the lake, 
and it's primarily made up of people who are non-Jewish. We'd call them Gentiles. That's what most of us are. And he gets over there, and it's, you know, I brought out last week, it's people that are Gentiles are considered unclean or not kosher. And so they were taking care of a herd of pigs, 2,000 about in number. And we know from the scriptures, from the book of Leviticus, that pigs are unclean. And so there was a man that met Jesus. He was tormented by demons. As a matter of fact, when he asked the man's name, he said, my name is Legion. And I showed last week that a legion was actually a group, was a, was a term used in the military by the Romans to speak of between five and 6,000 men. And so there were thousands of demons tormenting this man, and they get begged permission to go into the pigs. And Jesus, who has authority over demons, allowed them to go, and I shared how the pigs ran into the water, and they were all drowned. And that actually created a huge problem for Jesus, because when the people found out, they said, Jesus, we don't want you here because we're afraid of you. And so Jesus left, and I, sh I brought out the idea that even though Jesus has authority over the demonic forces, he will not circumvent our own will. He gets back into the boat. Now he's headed back to the other side. Most scholars believe he ends up in his own town, his ministry headquarters, Capernaum. Capernaum was the place where most of the miracles that Jesus performed occurred. Isn't that amazing? Now, we're picking up the story. And we read here that a crowd is waiting for him. And Mark introduces us to a man, a dignitary in his town by the name of Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. And James Edwards describes that role in, in detail. He said, a ruler of the synagogue, accordingly, was not a worship leader or a professionally trained scribe or a rabbi, but a lay member of a synagogue who was entrusted by the elders of the community with the general oversight of the synagogue and was to be responsible to make sure that the teaching was orthodox. Now how many know that Jesus had some problems with synagogue rulers? I mean, if you read through the Gospels carefully, you're gonna find out that, you know, it's interesting, some of these people felt threatened by Jesus. As a matter of fact, his responsibilities also included building maintenance, security, the procuring of scrolls for scripture reading, the arranging of Sabbath worship by designating readers, prayers, and preachers. So they were kind of an administrative role in the community. Now Jesus is uh, in this community, he's coming to this community, and the synagogue ruler who had probably opposed Jesus, who probably wasn't in agreement, but had been seeing the things that Jesus was doing. Now, you know, you cannot be supportive of something, but he could not deny that miracles were happening. And so, eventually, a crisis arises in his life. We read that his young daughter is dying. And so, in this man's mind, he said, I know who I need to get to. Because I'm sure, you know, the physicians were there, they were doing their best, but they were unable to do anything and so he, in desperation, we pick up the story, he runs to Jesus. Let's pick that story up in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl, my little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. And so Jesus went with him. Now, how many know that there's only two things that helps us overcome, you know, pressures from other people? 
peer pressure, the fear of man. The first one is simply that we have a greater fear of God than we do the fear of men. Okay, that's the first thing that helps us overcome the fear of public opinion, the fear of what people are going to say about us. But let me give you the second thing that helps us move beyond our fear of men, crisis. How many know if you're desperate enough, it's going to shape a little bit of what you're about to do? You're going to do some things in crisis you would never do in a normal circumstance or situation. How many know that's true? You're going to get desperate. This man was desperate. And so he ran to Jesus and he begged him to come to his his daughter's side. Now, the thing that strikes me about the story, and I've thought about it, and I've read it a number of times this week, I believe that he was probably quite anxious. I believe that the Bible said she was dying. I'm convinced that the fact that because Jesus didn't get there on time, as we're going to see, and she died, that she must have been very near death when when Jairus left the house, and when he heard the word that Jesus was coming back, I think something inside of him welled up. I think hope began to well up in his heart, and there was a sense of urgency within him to make sure that he got to Jesus before Jesus could take off and do anything else. He wanted Jesus to come to his house. He wanted Jesus to heal his daughter, and so he ran there, and regardless of what his other other peers and other people who disagreed with Jesus or maybe had said things about Jesus. He didn't care anymore. He wanted Jesus to come to his place. And so he begged him to come. And can you imagine actually the joy that filled his heart when Jesus started going towards his house? Can you imagine the excitement he felt that maybe, maybe his daughter would escape the jaws of death? Maybe this would be the situation that would turn her life around. And so they began to move. But how many know when you have a big crowd, you don't move fast? And the Bible says there was a crowd. And so Jesus went with them. You know, these miracles, we're going to witness some of the steps that transform people's lives and create a greater degree of faith. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that God is very, very committed to bringing transformation in our lives. How many believe that? And God is very committed to bringing a deeper level of faith and commitment into your life. And so he's going to use certain elements to create that in your soul. And so we see here three elements that do change our lives and that do deepen our faith. And the first one is crisis. Crisis has a way of either bringing us to God or, you know, we, we move away from God. There's only two responses to crisis. You either come to Christ or you ignore Christ. There's only two things you can do. And I think there's nothing so challenging and so life-changing as crisis. It moves us from our complacencies and our indifferences and our apathies to engage God at a more significant level. And so you can imagine when Jairus, you know, had, you know, had come to Jesus and all of a sudden he was moving towards meeting his crisis. How excited he must have felt. And yet in the midst of this relief, I still think there was a level of anxiety nagging at his heart. I I think there was a sense of urgency inside of Jairus. I think, you know, he was probably saying to himself, Jesus, please, hurry, hurry. Could you, I mean, how many here would probably be saying the same thing? There would be a sense that my daughter's dying, could you please get to my house? How many would sense that? There would be that sense of urgency to get him at your house. Wouldn't you feel that? Can you see that inside of Jairus, that sense of urgency? Please, Jesus, hurry. And yet Jesus is moving along. A crowd is pressing in on him. And then all of a sudden, 
The crowd slows down. Verse 24, it says, A large crowd followed, it pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Luke, the physician, says, but no one could cure her. Mark goes on and explains a little more in detail what's really happening. It says, uh, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. In other words, you know what was happening is her situation was deteriorating. Even though she had gone to doctors, not only were they unable to cure her, but the cures were actually making things worse, and she was deteriorating physically. But as we're going to see, there was even more significance to that. It says she actually came behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, who touched me? Jesus stopped, and Jairus' heart sank. Can you see it? Can you see what's happening? You know what? The sense of urgency inside of Jairus, and yet Jesus now stops. What in the world is going on? Because, you know, Jairus, he doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand what's happening. He just sees Jesus stop. Jesus now turns around. He's looking. He's searching for a person who's touched him. Jesus' own disciples are incredulous. What do you mean, who touched you? Are you kidding me? It says in verse 31, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? And St. Augustine says it this way, uh, flesh presses, but faith touches. And he, what he's basically saying is, even though there were a lot of people touching Jesus, there was only one person that really touched Jesus. Do you know we can be in church services, we can be hearing things, but we're not receiving, we're not responding to what's going on. But when you're in crisis, when you need to hear God's voice, when you need an answer from God and you come with that kind of a condition, God hears that heart cry and God speaks into your life. And that's exactly what happens in this situation. You know, it's amazing to me, you know, as we come to church, different people get a different element out of a service. Do you know that? Some people, you know, they're just not getting anything, not listening. They're not in a situation, but when you're desperate, when you're crying out, oh God, please hear my cry. God, I need you to speak into my life. God, I'm so desperate. God hears that response. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the person who's gonna please God must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so you and I have to have the right heart condition to really receive what God wants to give into our lives. I don't know about you guys, but when I come to church, you know, and I'm not preaching, I want to hear God's voice. I get up in the morning, I pray, I said, Lord, I don't want to just waste time. I, I'm there to connect with you. I'm there to worship you, but above everything else, I want to hear your voice today. I want you to speak into my life. I want to hear you. I want to respond to you. I want to know what you want to say to me today. And I come with that sense of expectation. Jesus just kept looking around to see who had, touched, who had done it. What's happening here? A woman bleeding. She had menstrual hemorrhage. And the condition was growing worse. 
This was not only a medical issue, folks. This was far more significant. It was a spiritual and a social one. As a matter of fact, according to the Torah, a woman who was unclean for, she was unclean for seven days after her monthly period. But if she had a protracted gynecological problem, as does this woman, she remained unclean throughout its duration. As a matter of fact, what they're doing is, this writer is just quoting the book of Leviticus. This is what the law wrote. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. What does it mean to be unclean? It means that you can't come into the presence of God. You're outside of God's scope. In a sense, you have to be purified before you can come into God's presence. That was the Jewish understanding. And so, you know what? A woman could actually be unable to attend the temple service or go to a synagogue service because she was, you know, at that moment unclean, and people understood that. But listen to what it goes on to say in Leviticus, the same chapter, verse 25, verse chapter 15, verse 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge just as the days of her period. What does that say? It says that as long as you're bleeding, you're unclean. And this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. This woman was unclean. She was outside of the scope of a relationship with God. She was alone. And not only that, she had spent everything she had to get better, but nothing could help her. And I could see her now at the end of her rope, tried everything, spent everything, No one was able to help her, and she was only worse. And she says to herself, but if I can just touch this man, I will be clean. That's a very powerful thing. You can see the desperation. This was a desperate person. You know, it's true that sin defiles us. And all those we touch when we sin, we defile. And and I've seen it over and over again. Isn't that true in our lives? When we fall away from God, when we do our own thing, when we're living in sin, not only are we affected, but everybody around us is affected by it. We influence people. We taint people's lives. That's what sin does. It's a defiling sort of thing. That's the lesson that the Old Testament is trying to teach us, that unclean things defile other things that are clean. And now this woman who's defiled is coming to touch Jesus. Maybe there's a reason why she didn't interrupt him. Maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, she didn't want to say anything, that she thought, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be clean. But she knew that if she touched him, what was she going to do to him? No, she, she, she would make him unclean. See, that's what we don't get in the story. It's interesting that Jesus would even stop. People would, would, you know, if you were a prophet or a healer, you'd probably would have just kept on going to know that somebody that's unclean has touched you and defiled you. But that's not what happens. You know, what had caused the woman to think that if she but touched his clothes, that she would be made whole? Was it superstition? Well, it could be. You know, we have a, you know I'm going to say this. There's a lot of superstition. We still have it today. You know, people, oh, we're sophisticated, we're modernized, we know better. Hey, go talk to any hockey player. They got a whole stack of superstitions before they play any hockey game. They won't change their ritual, they'll wear the same socks. I mean, on and on it goes. Isn't that true? Come on, guys. And you know what? You hate to admit this, but there's a lot of superstition in this room. We have a lot of funny ideas about God. 
We're afraid to do certain things because we're afraid God's gonna do a lot of stuff. We have a, really a lot of learning to do about the nature of Almighty God. Superstition still prevails in our culture today. Kent Hughes points out, beginning faith is often uninformed and mixed with many error. We can take courage in this, why? One does not need to have it all figured out to possess a faith that pleases God. In other words, God takes us right where we're at. God takes us even with our superstitions. God takes us with our funny ideas. God will many times look past our faults and see our need. God will reach into our situations. Even with an imperfect faith, he's gonna touch our lives. And he did that in this situation. That's why a child can even come to God. God's not looking for mature faith. He's just looking for authentic faith. He's looking for real faith. But the woman's faith was not only ignorant, but selfish. She wanted health, but she did not especially care about the healer. I've already said this is so typical at the beginning of our faith. We come to Christ because of some problem. We reach out in stumbling faith. He touches us, and then we learn to love him and trust him with our lives. That's not how it begins. Usually we come to God because we need something. I've even heard people say, I don't want to go to God because I don't want to be indebted to him. I don't want to owe him something. I've heard this, you know. Let me just say something. You and I are so desperately needy, we need him regardless of why you come to him. He is so gracious and loving and generous that he takes us just as we are. But he's so good to us, he doesn't leave us the way we are. He brings about a transformation in our lives. He begins to bring about healing in the broken, fragmented, you know, disoriented, doubt-filled places of our soul. The woman realizes, you know what? Jesus is aware of what's happening. Matter of fact, in verse 33, we read, Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She unloaded. She told the whole story. She told him what had happened. She told about the 12 years. She told about the suffering, the disappointments. She told about feeling alienated and isolated. She told it all. You know what I like? The second element that changes our lives and deepens our faith is the interruptions that come into our lives. I can't imagine what Jairus is going through. What in the world is Jesus doing? We have an emergency here and he's talking to this woman. Obviously she's, she's healed, move on. We gotta get to the house. Can you just see it? Impatience so often flares when our agenda is delayed. How many know that that's probably true in most of our lives? You and I wanna do something, something comes in the way, we get frustrated, we're impatient with the interruption. Let me ask the question. Do you think that that interruption was divine? Do you think the interruptions in our life are divine? Absolutely. I think somehow we have to t retake a look at what's happening in our lives. The interruptions that come into our lives are sent there by God. We don't want to hear that, Pastor. You know, we're just trying to move past the interruptions and get down to business, you know? And Jairus probably felt that because, I mean, this was a serious thing. You know, I could just see Jairus sitting there, you know, just agitated, thinking to himself, can't Jesus just start moving? This is desperate stuff. I mean, what's with the conversation? Why is he stopping here to have this woman confess her story? All she wanted was a cure. She got it. Let's move on, right? But Jesus slows things down. Oh, isn't that frustrating when he does that? Just kind of slows things down. 
What Jesus wants is more than just making her physically better. He wants a relationship. He wants her to understand that it was her faith in him and not a superstitious touch that made the difference. So he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. He wants her to know who he is. Who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh. And when he said the word daughter, what is he basically saying? You're my family. You know those 12 years that you felt alone and isolated and outside of the community of relationship with God? You're my daughter. You're my daughter. Man, that must have been like music to her ears. Can you just hear those words? Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering, from your shame. Because she lived in shame for 12 years. I love what Alan Cole points out regarding the value of her public confession of faith. He says it was not enough to believe in the heart. The woman must as well confess with the mouth. She must confess in front of all these men her prior need of healing and then the glad facts of her salvation. You know, it was a costly confession. We can tell from the fear and trembling. For a woman to speak at all before an Eastern crowd and above all of such matters of her monthly period, you know, bleeding, I mean, would be very humbling for her. That was a very humbling experience. But isn't it interesting, the Greek word for healed and the Greek word for saved is actually the same word. It just, you use it depending on the context. But in this context, not only was she healed, but she was also saved. It was the same thing. Go, Jesus said, it says to her, your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. Jesus is not only the healer of our bodies, he's the healer of our soul. He's our savior. And this is what Paul is telling us regarding our salvation. How does it come about? It says that that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and is with your mouth that that you confess and are saved. How many think confessing publicly is pretty important? You know what Jesus said? If you don't confess me before man, if you are unash- if you're not unashamed before man, if you don't confess me before men, or al- you allow shame to keep you from confessing Christ before man, he said, neither will I confess you before my Father and the angels on the day of judgment. Folks, I think it's important we confess Christ. I think it's important we speak for Christ. I think it's important we stand up for Christ. We are living in a very interesting time. You guys may not be, as maybe you're more aware of it than I am, or maybe I'm aware of some things that you're not, but let me tell you what's happening right now. We are in a very interesting moment. The church is deeply divided. Do you know that? The evangelical church, you know, the believing church is deeply divided today. There's a lot of pressure on our culture for us to be silent. There's a lot of pressure in our culture for us to believe things that the Bible speaks against and to make us be quiet for fear that we'll be rejected by our culture. Isn't that what's happening? Folks, we need to stand up. We need to pray for moral courage. Isn't it interesting in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 8, Jesus, you know, the the Bible says there that, you know who are the people who end up perishing and are banished into outer darkness and are forever ostracized from the presence of God? 
You know, there's even Christians today saying there is no such thing as hell. Let me tell you something. Jesus spoke about hell more than any other preacher in the Bible. But listen to what he says. He says all unbelievers are going to be there. All adulterers. Well, we kind of know all of that stuff. But you know what in the list? All liars. But listen to this one. All cowards. Boy, that should shake us up. We need to be, you know, the Bible, it says on purpose, it says we need to be strong and very courageous. We need to stand up. We need to speak up at times. We need to count. You know, it's easy to just, you know, be a flypaper on the wall and let other people discuss things. But, you know, every once in a while, we need to start learning some things and stand up and say, you know what? That's not what the Bible teaches at all. And I don't care what these preachers are saying today. Some of them are out of touch with reality. They're, they're succumbing to the pressure of the culture. And you need to know that. Can you imagine what it was like for Jairus wading through this entire exchange? Can you imagine the growing anxiety building up within this man's heart? His situation critical. He's left his daughter dying. Time is of the essence and Jesus has delayed. <clears throat> James Edward writes, the interruption so profitable to the woman has cost the life of Jairus' daughter. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? I don't think anything could have been more devastating but that moment. Can you imagine this man's heart? At that moment, everything stopped for him. All hope gone. Despair filling his heart. Grief beginning to build within his soul. Maybe there's even a bit of anger. Maybe there's some frustration mounting because, you know, Jesus had delayed in coming. Don't you think there's a lot of people mad at God because God didn't do what they thought he should have done? Could you imagine all the frustration starting to build up inside of this man's heart as he hears the words, your, your daughter's dead, don't bother Jesus anymore. However, Jesus had not forgotten Jairus. Listen to what happens in verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus heard what they said. Ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Don't let these words define you. You know, sometimes we can't let the words of the doctors define us. Sometimes we can't let the word of our boss define us, or our spouse define us, or our parents define us, or our children define us. You know, people are speaking into our life, and we hear these words, and they begin to define who we are. Is that not true? You're a loser. You'll never amount to anything. You know, you're an idiot for a husband. You know, you know, on and on, we can speak these terrible words of hate and humiliation, a lack of respect and a lack of love to one another. And it's crushing and devastating into people's souls. These words that begin to define our lives. But listen, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. I love those words of Jesus. While Jesus was still speaking. Oh, I read that. Okay. Do you know, I've already said it once, but I say it again in this message. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. I love what Timothy Keller points out. It's not, I will not be hurried even though I love you. It is, I will not be hurried because I love you. In other words, God has a reason for the delay. 
In other words, God's delays is because God loves us. I know what I'm doing, Jesus is basically telling us. I know what I'm doing in your life. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. Isn't that the truth? How many of us have said, if God really loved me, why would he let me go through this? If God really loved me, why wouldn't he hurry and do this? Come on now. But when you and I just relinquish all of that and we surrender and we say, God, Father, you know best. I have no idea what you're doing. But what am I suggesting today? That God's delays, God allowing crisis, God allowing interruption, what's it doing? It's strengthening our faith. It's deepening our faith. It's changing us. It's transforming us if we will allow it to. If we will allow it to. Let me move on to the final element. And it's simply the experience of others. What do I mean? How does the experience of others change our lives and deepen our faith? What we so often fail to understand is God has no respect to our persons. He will do for you what he's done for me. He will do for you what he's done for others. And as this woman was standing there, Jesus had brought about this amazing miracle. Nobody could cure her. And all of a sudden, she was whole. Jairus was watching this exchange and seeing a miracle happening before his eyes, even though he wasn't totally computing. He's standing there hearing all of this. A miracle is happening before him. And Jesus just says, listen, just believe. Just trust me. I can do this. What is Jesus, you know, saying? I already knew she was gonna die before I left. I already wanted you to know that not only do I have authority over disease, but I have authority over death. I want you to know that. I want you to know I have that kind of power. What this woman had suffered and experienced is now about to be used to encourage the faltering faith of a father struggling with the loss of his daughter. The seeming delay is to model for Jairus that when faith is in operation, what seems impossible for man is possible for God. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, for us, this is done. Story's over. Close the book. But God's here. He's on the scene. He's moving. Hallelujah. Jesus says, listen, I'm only taking a few of you. It says here in verse 37, He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. I got to point out to you, in these ancient homes, they had professional mourners. If you were poor, you'd have a couple people show up. But if you were rich like this guy, a whole stack of mourners showed up, you know? Big money in mourning. These guys are wailing and carrying on this huge commotion. Jesus hears all this stuff. Now, why does Mark tell us this part of the story? He wants to make a point. What's the point? The girl is dead. You know, I keep reading in commentaries. It's so annoying sometimes. Oh, she probably was in a coma. You know what? I hate our modern arrogance that would even suggest that. Don't you think these ancient people knew when people were dead? You know, hello, you know, and these guys, this was their living. They knew what, they were like vultures. Somebody's dying, the mourners are practicing the instruments, you know. They're practicing the routine about mourning. You say, Pastor, you're just painting a very bleak and 
nasty picture of these guys. Well, this is what happens. Verse 39, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Look, how can you go from weeping and wailing and grief to laughing and mocking? You have to be disconnected to the person that died to do that. These were professional mourners. And they knew a dead person when they saw one. I mean, this is money, man. This is my income, you know. Bad actors. <laughs> After he put them out, I love this. Jesus is t- How many can sense Jesus is in control of the situation? After Jesus put them out, I think the mom and dad were totally numb. He just told those guys, out of here. And they looked at him and said, we're leaving. Because I think Jesus had a look about him that when he was all business, people were knowing it was all business. They were out of the house. They left, it says. He put them out. He took the child's mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. So obviously, now the father's there, Jairus, the mom, and the three closest disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is... In Aramaic, now you have to remember, the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. So now Mark breaks in from the Greek and he gives us this in Aramaic because the people spoke in Aramaic at the time. And it just means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, if you were to paraphrase like Mark did for us earlier, here's the paraphrase. It'd be something like, sweetheart, rise. It was the very tender words of Jesus to this little girl. And the Bible says... I love this. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. Now, she was dead. She was 12 years old, and at this, they were completely astonished. How many get a picture that all these miracles, after they happen, everyone's like, wow. I mean, could you imagine, like, Peter, James, and John, and the mother and the dad, they just saw the girl dead, the mourner screeching, and Jesus kicking them out. He walks in, he takes her by the hand, he says, sweetheart, get up. She stands up and starts walking around. They're, they're, they're stunned. How many probably be a little stunned? You know, your child is there dead. Doctors, you know, the machines flatlined. You know, they've unplugged the thing. Everybody's wheeling the stuff out of the room, you know, and Jesus walks into the room, takes her by the hand and says, please get up. And she stands up and walks out of the hospital room. I think that would create a little stir. That's just how my mind works. I think that would create a few conversations. Would it not? Wouldn't a few charged nurses get a little, you know, like, what in the world happened here? You know, and especially, you know, and then Jesus, you know, ever something supernatural happens, he immediately moves back to the natural. He goes, could you go please feed her? She's hungry. How many know when you're feeding people, it's a good sign they're getting better? You know, she's okay now, feed her. So Timothy Keller says it so powerfully. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Listen to me now. We're living in a world, as human beings, we're totally afraid of dying. Death is the great enemy of humanity. Most people you talk to in our culture, they think after you die, nothing. Nada. I want to declare to you today, Jesus Christ has authority over death. And if you were walking with him hand in hand every day of your life, when you and I die, it's nothing but sleep. It's changing our state and bringing us into a new state before God. What an amazing thing that is. What an amazing miracle that just transpired. But maybe you're here today, you know, 
and you see this beautiful story. I talk about interesting, and I was reading about this. Most children and women in the New Testament in that culture were literally considered nothing. And Jesus is focusing in on them. Isn't that beautiful? That's who Jesus is. That's who our God is. You know, that which was considered unclean, the leper, the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus even spitting and putting, you know, spittle on somebody's eyes, all of that was unclean behavior. You know, Jesus was blowing people away. He was doing all kinds of crazy things. Why? Because when you and I bring our uncleanness to him, he takes it upon himself and hangs it on a cross so that you and I can be pure. You and I can be clean. You and I can be brought into a right relationship with God. So I'm gonna have you stand this morning as we close the service in prayer. Maybe you're here today. You know, I pray, this is my prayer. God, today I'm preaching on crisis. Bring people to this service who are in crisis. And God answers that prayer. Some of you are here today and you're going, God, why have I gone through crisis? And God is saying to you, it's not because I don't love you. It's because I'm doing something powerful in your life so that afterwards you will be able to bring comfort to those around you. You're going to share your experiences so that others, other people's faith can rise up and appropriate Christ as healer and savior. That's the reason why. But with every head bowed this morning, how many here say, you know, pastor, this morning, I came to church today, my life is in crisis. Is that you today? Just raise your hand. That's you. Just raise your hand. My life's in crisis. I'm going to pray with you today. God's going to hear your cry. Because I want you to see that God heard Jairus' cry. Even though there was an interruption, God did a miracle. How many here, you need a miracle today? You need a miracle. Just raise your hand. How many here today say, Pastor, I need the greatest miracle of all. You know what? I need to surrender to Jesus. I'm not walking hand in hand with him. As a matter of fact, if I were to die tonight, yeah, I'd be in trouble. Unless you could honestly say, you know what? For me, I'm walking hand in hand. I, I feel that with my life. I'm walking hand in hand with him. If he was to take me tonight, it would just be like going to sleep. It would be a change of state for me. That's it. Why do you know that, Pastor? My trust is in Jesus Christ. We sang it, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Is that your confession this morning? It is mine. If it's yours, you're fine. You're going to be okay in eternity. So I'm speaking to two groups today. You can, you can get a distinction. The one group I'm saying, if you don't know Jesus, he's your Savior. You need to meet him. How do I meet him, Pastor? I pray a prayer and say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Forgive me for sinning against you. I want to change the way I'm living. I need your help. I can't do it in my own strength. He will come and heal you and transform you and change even your desires and give you a spiritual appetite. Man, it's an amazing thing what God does. But number two, if you're here today and you're in crisis, I want you to know God is doing a work in your life. He loves you with an everlasting love. Don't even question it. He does. He loves you. But he wants you to know today, I'm with you. I'm walking with you just like I was Jairus. 
And even though there are things that are happening you don't understand, there's a reason for it. That's what you need to know today. God's speaking to you, that word. Just trust me. Just believe in me. Just trust me. I'll take you through this crisis. Even though there's interruptions, all kinds of things happening. I don't understand it, God. I'm confused about it. I've gone through moments like that. I say, God, I don't understand. And I always get the same thing, Paul, just trust me. I said, Lord, you're trustworthy. I will trust you. And he brings you through those experiences. And you become a better person. You become a deeper person. You become a more empathetic and compassionate person. You become a transformed person. God is doing a transformation in your life. So let's just raise our hands to God as I pray today. Lord, we receive your grace today. We receive your mercies today. We receive your love today. We receive your salvation today. Your forgiveness today. Your healing today. Your delivering power today. Lord, we receive your provisions today. Your wisdom, your grace, your goodness today. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We cry out to you. Hear our cry today. And Lord, may we be strengthened. May we be encouraged today. May we come away with deep, conviction, Lord, that we're going to walk with you through this time of crisis, knowing that you're going to be bringing about a great moment of divine glory in and through our lives. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.